Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Joy Clausen Soto is the founder of the annual Dolphin Interaction Program for Patients from Rady Children's Hospital and Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Joy is a stage two non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, a dolphin trainer, TEDx speaker, and the director and subject of the documentary, Just One Year, A Story of Triumph Over Cancer. Joy, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's so great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I don't even know where to start, (laughs) so let's work in the dolphin stuff for sure. Um, I'm very fascinated about Children's Hospital Los Angeles because, unfortunately, I personally spent a lot of time there with my sister, Um, but I want you to take us back to the beginning of your cancer journey. So the beginning of my cancer journey is I had been a dolphin trainer at SeaWorld, and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to chase another dream of mine, and I decided to go to film school up in Santa Barbara. So I moved everything up there, and then within probably about two or three months after getting there, I remember getting sick, and I had this cough, and the cough wouldn't go away, kept getting worse and worse instead of better. And I remember getting a little bit concerned about that. And then I started to get really, really tired. Even before the cough developed, I was just really just exhausted. I remember going on a trip to um, Arizona with my boyfriend at the time, and uh, he had to do some stuff in the day. So I took my car and I drove up this mountain and I had to actually take a nap at the top of the mountain because I was so exhausted from doing nothing, from driving. That's it. And so there's a little you know, alarm bells that were going off there. And then I, the cough kept getting worse, like I said. And then on Thanksgiving, I went to my uncle's house and I coughed again. But for the first time when I coughed, I did this. And that's when I felt that there was a lump there. And it was a big enough lump for, I could just feel all the blood just drain from my face. I stopped talking to my aunt and uncle and I ran right into the bathroom and just started palpating it. Like, what is this? And I could see it. It was big. It wasn't like it was some little thing. It was, it was like about the size of an egg underneath my skin. So for, so for people listening, can you tell them where that lump was? Yeah, it was, uh, you can see the scar of where, well, I don't know if you can, but this right here is where the lump was. So there's a scar cause they removed it. So I just want to describe for the people listening. So Joy is pointing to her left clavicle, right? Yes. Kind of between your neck and your clavicle. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Thank, just thank so, you. So Sorry. I know where you're pointing. <laughs> I've seen the video, so I'm talking to that. <laughs> uh, all right. Keep going. So, oh, and how old were you and when was this? I was 25 and it was back in 2001. Uh, so then I'm at my uncle's house and he said, let's go to urgent care because we were you just can't move on from what is this? Cause I kept asking them, did you see this when I came in? And we tried to talk about something else, but then I couldn't talk about anything else because it was all I could think about is what is this thing? So he, we went to urgent care, which is right around the corner from where he lived. And I, I remember it was, no one was there. I, I got seen right away. And I remember while I was waiting to be seen, which wasn't very long, I picked up a, a magazine and I happened to look in and I, I it opened up to leukemia. So I started reading about leukemia and then I get called in and the doctor starts palpating this lump 
and he keeps pushing again and again and asking me if it hurts. And I kept saying, no, it doesn't hurt. And I thought that he thought I was strong. So the more he's asking me, the more I'm thinking, wow, he must be really impressed with me. But <laughs> turns out <laughs> he wasn't impressed. Uh, so I, I could see his face start to change while he was palpating and that he was not happy that I wasn't reacting to it. So as he walked away, I said, it's good if it doesn't hurt, right? And he didn't even look up at me. He just said, no, it's not always good if it doesn't hurt. And in that instant, I knew something was really wrong. And because of that article I read out in the front, I, I said, do you think it's leukemia? And he simply didn't say anything to me. He didn't respond at all. And as I was walking out, he said, do you mind if I speak to your uncle? Um, because he knew I had come with my uncle. So he, my uncle goes in there. I go to the bathroom outside and I just start you know, crying in the mirror and like palpating the lump and seeing if I can make it hurt. And from then on, the next week I was diagnosed with stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma and my diagnosis ended up changing. It actually was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, so I'm so grateful that they found that because if they hadn't, I would probably not be here right now because I would have been undertreated. So thankfully they found that. How, what was the time frame you said about a week so you went to urgent care you had that experience you know it's bad um did you end up going to your general practitioner i mean what were some of the next steps so people understand what happened? so that was thursday it was thanksgiving then i had to wait the weekend on monday uh well first of all i was in a different location i had been in san diego i was new to the area. I didn't have anything set up because I'm young. What's going to happen to me? I'm not going to get sick. Well, that was really stupid. And so uh, my my aunt had some people that she knew, but the doctor she knew was out of town. So I just started, I don't even remember honestly who the first doctor was that I saw, but I remember I went in through for a series of tests, probably organized by the guy that was out of town. And um, the chest x-ray, it was like right away, something was really wrong because it lit up. So the cancer was not only on my neck, but it was also behind my lungs and around my heart. So that was the reason why I had been coughing. It was just irritating my lungs. And they did like a needle biopsy and, and all of this stuff. And so by, I think it was Thursday or Friday, I was actually getting that, you know, lump, that egg-sized lump um, uh, biopsied by that, the end of that week. So that's how fast it happened. And that was the end, right? So that was the end of November. And by the very beginning of December, I was getting chemotherapy. So it all happened very, very fast. Wow. Did you go back to San Diego for the chemotherapy and back to sort of home? to where No, you I was with my aunt up there. So at least I had her there to help support me. Um, here down in San Diego, I say here because I live in San Diego now, but I have a lot of friends, but I don't really have that family down here. So it was nice to be able to be with her and she would bring me to my appointments and um, just make me food. And, and she welcomed all of my friends from San Diego up there. So there's always people, you know, coming up to help cook for me or just, to, you know, help eat the food that my aunt made. <laughs> at first I was losing weight. And so, um, which I think was just a mistake on the scale, but I was then fed very fatty foods <laughs> for for quite a while. <laughs> Macaroni and cheese with ham. It was delicious. And so my friends would help me eat all that stuff. You're just, you're just so Thanks. lovely. You're really, really lovely. Um, what did the doctor tell you about the diagnosis and what were your expectations about it? 
I, well, the first thing when I was told I need to get chemotherapy that I asked was, what happens if I don't get the chemotherapy? Um, somehow I thought maybe there's some way I could avoid that bullet. And she said, you'll be dead within the year. So that's when I knew that I had to do it. And, you know, they talk, she talked to me about um, freezing my eggs and, uh, you know, just all the stuff that was just super overwhelming. And that's why it's so good to have someone else there when you go to the doctor's appointments, because they can help write down things, remember things, because it's just like a shockwave has hit you. And if you don't have notes or someone else there to help, you're not going to remember everything that's happened. Um, but yeah, so it, that that's what it, what it was. And um spinal taps and all that. Um, but, but it was, you'll be dead within the year if you don't get treatment. Wow. And how long did you have chemotherapy? And I had chemotherapy for six months, but the fun thing, and I say that in a completely sarcastic way (laughs) is that, um, after directly after I had my second chemotherapy, I get a call from my oncologist. I had two different colleges. So this is the first one I'm talking about. And I get a call from her saying, um, we don't know why, but for some reason, your slides were sent to Stanford, which is like the Mecca for lymphomas. And it looks like it's actually large B cell lymphoma. So so that's one of the things I would tell people to do is to make sure you get um, uh, someone else to check out your slides, make sure it is what it is, because I didn't even think that was something I needed to do. And then here here I am finding out that I would have been undertreated if if they had not done that. And she didn't even know why it was sent. So she's not the person who sent it. Down the line, I found out that my primary care physician, the person that my aunt knew, um, was the one who asked for them to be checked out at Stanford. So I'm so grateful for that. So initially they were treating you as if it were Hodgkin's lymphoma. They were initially treating me as if it was Hodgkin's, which has a higher survival rate. And then when it turned to turned out to be non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, we got a second opinion from a pediatric oncologist over at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And he recommended a really intense chemotherapy regimen. And what's really interesting about this is there, he, there's, he has a reason for it. Children with cancer and... Um, older, the older population, they all have increases in their survival rates, but young adults don't. It's kind of plateaued. And so what the theory is, is that they're, the young adults are being undertreated, that they could actually take more chemotherapy because the protocols for chemotherapy are written from 20 to 80, right? Um, so if you're not hit, maybe you're not hit hard enough, then you don't go for a cure. So um, luckily I had a doctor that really wanted to hit me hard with chemotherapy and we went for a cure. And so I was actually treated at Children's Hospital because the chemotherapy regimen was so intense that none of the doctors or hospitals where I lived would do it. So I, I was treated in a place where they were familiar with that. Did, did you have to go down to Children's Hospital Los Angeles? Or- oh, yeah. I was yeah. I was in there. Yeah. For, for East. What? Uh, how long ago was that with you? With your sister, um, it was two thousand one. We spent a lot of time in four, four east and four west. Four east. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Well, yeah. I was there. You know, I had a great doctor, and it, when I was there, I didn't feel like an adult hospital. It felt, you know, it was a kids' hospital, so it was there were happy colors around, and it didn't smell like a hospital. And um, I just had a really good experience with everyone that worked there. Who was your doctor? I have to ask. Doctor Stuart Siegel. Don't know him. That's a good thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we did not have the best experience. And when we finally got a really good pediatrician we liked at Children's, we had already gotten a second opinion at UCLA. 
-hmm. And my sister had a very adult type of cancer. And so we actually moved her um, treatment to UCLA from Children's, and um, which is a big deal with the insurance. It took six weeks to do. And it was also just a big deal where we lived in LA. We were fairly close to Children's Hospital. We were not close to UCLA. We had a really good experience with the nurses. We only had one nurse who was terrible. And, um, but again, you know, at at that time, the way my sister was admitted, um, it was essentially through emergency. And it was the oncologist on call who was assigned to her. There was no rhyme or reason for it. So not only was he not an expert in her type of cancer, he really didn't know solid tumor cancers. What I want to know, and we have to go back to Dolphin Trainer at some point because I'm fascinated by that, but you had changed your life. You were going to be a filmmaker. Right. What happened with film school? So I, after getting diagnosed, I contacted my film school and I asked them if I could just go to the classes and not do the work, which sounds kind of crazy, but I just knew I'd be too tired with the chemotherapy to go on these shoots because they're like exhausting shoots where you're helping out with equipment, you're up at late weird hours, um, or even editing. I'd be editing just way too many hours in a seat. And so I, but I still wanted to learn and they said no to that, which I was pretty shocked about. Um, so when that happened, I decided that I wanted to make a documentary on myself because that way I could still learn about filmmaking. And I hoped that I would show a story of survival because I, I know there's just so many stories out there. Um, like in the movies, you know, the, the protagonist always dies in the end, but there are a lot of survivors out there. And I wanted to highlight that because just knowing that gives people hope, you know? And so I was hoping to put more of that hope out there in the world. What was that like making a documentary about yourself? It was cathartic because when things were, when I was emotional or had a lot bottled up inside of me, I could just take my camera, my tripod, my IV, wheel it down to an empty room because they'd let me do that. And I would just talk to the camera. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I'm crazy. (laughs) That's awesome though. I love it. Yeah. So, um, so that really helped because I didn't have to unload any of that onto anyone else. I could just unload it to my best friend, the camera. Uh, it was also fun because it kept my mind off of what was going on. I wasn't thinking about how scary it was all of the time. I mean, let's be honest, it was scary. And I did think about that, but I got to focus on something else. I got to focus on making something beautiful out of this horrible situation that I was in. And I think that's the, the best thing that happens out of, you know, cancer or anything else that uh, any of these challenges that we have in life is that we can make something beautiful. I mean, look at what you're doing right now. You're making something beautiful out of this and you're helping other people. Oh, thank you. That's very, very sweet of you to say. Um, So what happens? You do the chemo, no radiation, I take it? No radiation, no. That's excellent. And um, I do remember when I saw part of your TED talk, something about you finally got your port taken out. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, who was that with you who was a big part of your documentary? So his name was Kevin. There's, If you watch my documentary, there's this guy, Kevin, that's throughout it. And it just to go to show you, it just goes to show that you don't know what's going to happen in life and who will be there and who won't be there because my boyfriend just like that stopped talking to me. And yeah, that was it. I left a message. That's all it took. I left a message on his answering machine on Thanksgiving saying, I think I have cancer. And that's all it took. 
He never talked to me again. There's more of that. You'll get that in the book if you read the book. I've read a book about it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to stop. Time out, time out. Yeah, time out. Okay. So because not only did I experience this more so when my sister died, but I know a lot of people who experienced this. So how long had you guys been together? It wasn't a ton of time. We had been together for about two months. That's it. And and we the last words he said to me were, you make me so happy. And then we both went our separate ways for Thanksgiving. He went to his family, I went to mine, and then that was that was it. I, I left a message, never heard back from him. So in your mind, you imagine, okay, these are the people who will be there for me, but really in life, it's not how it works. But I do find that other people will fill in the gaps somehow. And that's what happened with the person you saw that was in my documentary. His name is Kevin, and he was a friend from film school. I barely knew him. It's film school, so we went out to a movie together. That was it. And the minute he found out I had been sick, he um, brought me flowers, which I don't remember because I was out of it after the surgery. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Um, And he was there for me for every single chemotherapy treatment, every blood transfusion, and even up to the end when they took out the port. Um, and he told me, which I didn't, I didn't remember until recently. And I, and so that part's in the book too, is that what happened and the reason why he was so motivated to help me is because his grandmother had just had cancer and she passed away from it. And so he said, I'm not gonna let this happen to her. And so he just saw it as an opportunity to help me and to help coach me through this and to get me through it. I agree with you. You really find out who your friends are. Yeah. You really, really do. You, you just find out who your friends are. Um, when the shit hits the fan and this podcast is not supposed to have cussing, but oh well, we'll just let that go. <laughs> so what do you do now? Then, okay. So I think when, when you survive cancer, which is such a blessing to, to be on the other side, but it's also, um, you, at least I was, I'll speak for myself. I was going through PTSD and I didn't know it. So I would dream every night that I still had cancer, that I was still getting chemotherapy and I was still in the hospital. It, it wasn't, I wasn't upset by it, but it was just my, my dream. Every night I was back in the cancer. And so it took me an entire year to finally reach out for help and to um, start seeing someone, a therapist. And that's when I was able to unload all of this stuff that I just kept bottled up because it was just too much to unload on my friends and family. So I just let it all out to her and talk to her and that helped immensely. So I would definitely recommend that people find an outlet, talk to a therapist or find a group. For me, I'm not a group kind of a person. Um, that doesn't work for me, but the, the therapist helped out a lot. I hear that a lot. And so that's why I wanted to know what happened next, because I hear that a lot from cancer survivors, especially if if they were younger, that they, it surprised them that they felt almost worse after they survived the cancer. And, and like you just said, they couldn't really talk to their family or friends because everyone else was so happy that they were still alive. And and I'm really glad that you got therapy. Um, That's, that's excellent. And I do think most people need help sooner um, and those supportive services need to be in place. Did you go back to film school? I mean, what what happened with film school? Um, yeah, t- tell us about that. I don't really, I don't talk about this part very often, but I didn't go back to that film school. I went to one of the top film schools in the country, if not the world, which is the American Film Institute. I think it was a little bit too early for me to do that because I still, if you look at any of my pictures from when I went there, I had 
um, le- probably an inch of hair, if that, on my head. So that's how soon after I was done with everything that I started going to film school. So I, I feel blessed that I got in. Um, but um, I think it, I, I wasn't in the right track. Also, I went into producing and I wish I'd gone into directing. So I was a really good producer. I got, you know, crazy locations. I got a hospital. I got a train station, like things you don't get as a film student. I got those locations. So I was good at it. But the second year you produced your, you know, someone else's film. So I decided to not go back the second year and I produced my own documentary, which is entitled um, Just One Year, A Story of Triumph Over Cancer. So that went to film festivals and um, won awards at those film festivals. So I just focused on that and and that's about it. So and we will put a link to your book and the documentary and your TED Talk and all of that in the, in the show notes. Okay. Um, so I want to circle back to your journey and ask about your parents. Um, were they involved and how was it for them from your point of view? Oh, well, I think it's hard when you say from my point of view because you know, I'm I'm dealing with so much. I think from from the person who's going through it, it's like it's a lot about that person and not about what everyone else is going through. Now, when I'm so far away from this, I can look back and say, "Oh my gosh, that was so much for everyone to go through." Um, my mom, I this is gonna sound horrible, but I didn't want her to be there because I always felt like I was more of the mother to her. And so when this happened, I didn't want her to be there so that I, that way I didn't have to comfort her when she was upset about me being sick. Um, she's also she was also like a, a she used to be a model. And so she's very, very pretty. And so I, I remember like when I got my braces on when I was little, that the um, orthodontist made a mistake because she walked in at the very end to check on me because she loves me, right? She just, she wants to check on her daughter. She's being wonderful. And then the orthodontist forgot to clip those wires in the back. So for an entire week, I like these long wires are killing me every time that I'm I'm biting or moving my mouth at all. I don't know why. And it's because he forgot to clip them. But and the minute that I, I found out what happened, I knew it was it was exact time that she had walked in. So I thought, I don't want anyone to be distracted. I want to focus on myself. And so sometimes, you know, when you're going through this, you have to be selfish. And that's what I, I did. I was selfish during that time. Um, but I have to say with my mom, there was a point where I came close to dying. And uh, I was rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night. I had a fever. And so my aunt actually called up a lot of people, including my mom, and said, hey, if you... this." we don't know if Joy's going to make it. So um, you should probably go to the hospital and visit her and say goodbye. So I had all these people who were coming in to say goodbye to me. Um, but I was starting to feel better because I was getting these blood transfusions. And I didn't really realize that that's why all these people were coming to see me that day. And then at the end of the night, um, I take off my cap because I'd have this blue cap on and no one else is in the room with me. It's dark and, you know, it feels good to have my, my bald scalp, you know, revealed and cooling off. And then I see this woman um start staring into the windows because if for children's hospital they used to have like these diamond shaped windows like three i think of them and so i see this woman like frantically looking into the window i'm like what is this woman doing okay go away lady this is not your room and then she opens the door i'm like oh my gosh really and and then she goes joy and she looks at me oh i i don't want to cry i'm not gonna cry um she looks at me because she isn't even sure if it's me because now i'm bald i don't have any hair and i'm like mom and she had flown out because she lived in Hawaii and she flew all the way out to see me because the, you know, the beacon went out saying that I was about to die. 
And so um, she was there for me and then she stayed and she helped take care of me in the hospital and she made me food and she, we just, you know, share these precious moments. So I'm, I know I did what I had to do, but I'm so grateful that she just went, nah, I'm going to be there for her. I'm going to, I'm coming no matter what, because that meant so much to me to have her there. Oh, that's so beautiful. Have you ever told her that? Um, yeah, I did tell her that. Yes. What was your worst moment? And all of it. I would say the worst moment was, <laughs> I have this, um, the worst moment was when I found out that it was a more aggressive type of cancer and that my hair started falling out and suddenly the effects of the chemotherapy were hitting me and I, my stomach really hurt and I felt nauseous and it was like all hitting at once. I remember having this moment and it's in my documentary where I'm basically fighting with myself. So I have, you know, like it's crazy how you do that. You know, like you're trying to pep yourself up and the sad part is being sad. So it, to me, I describe it as my Mount Everest climbing joy. And that is um, <laughs> having a pep talk with <laughs> sad joy because I was just so down. So yeah, it's, I sound like a crazy person. You know, I, I kept saying, you're so lucky. You're too lucky to be feeling like this. And so I, I you know, I was <laughs> giving myself a pep talk slash being myself up for <laughs> being so sad. Oh, gosh. Have you ever read The Untethered Soul? Highly recommend because it's what you were just talking about. So I might even put a okay. link to that in the show notes. But it's it's all about, he calls it your inner roommate and how to just let go of the inner roommate. The inner roommate should not be running the show. Um, so I think you might okay. enjoy that book. Wait, which um, one? What, like Mount, I needed Mount Everest Climbing Joy. She was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no, keep positive. That's good. <laughs> but yeah, that, that person, the way um, the untethered soul talked about it was just different and it hit me the right way. It's just that, that voice in your head that is negative um, or fearful or, you know, just, you know, insecure and any negative emotion and not always, not necessarily tearing mm -hmm. you down, but not helping you move forward in, a, in the right direction in right. a positive way. And the way he talks about it is just really beautiful. What was your best moment? My best moment? See, I was trying to think about this, and I don't really have a specific best moment, but I, I think just overall, just having this flood of love there for me was amazing because, I mean, I don't think most people experience that in their lives. So I feel blessed I got to experience that while I was still alive. And to just see my, not only my family showing up, but all of these friends coming to visit me, calling me, um, bringing me gifts, just, just whatever. Like there, I, I would have this one friend of mine that who would come into the, uh, the hospital all the time and bring two plates of cookies, one for the nurses, one for me, <laughs> bribing them to that's be nice. That's right. To me. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. You know. But, but that was a very special feeling that I don't think everyone in their life gets to experience. So I feel very blessed for that. So I would say that that is the best um, experience I had during that. Oh, I wish you could have met my sister. I really do. That's what she wrote in her journal during her second week in the hospital, right at the beginning of her cancer journey, that yeah. cancer blessed her with all these people because, because so many people showed up and came and visited and brought her gifts. And, um, and she didn't know she was that loved. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's with everyone. So to have that kind of experience is just a, a huge blessing. And I, I wish I could have met her too. What is one thing 
you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? I would say the to have my slides double-checked by someone else because I think you always think you need to get a second opinion, which to me means just looking at the same slides. Uh, I don't know. I guess that is looking at the same slides. I for me, like having the mecca of lymphomas look at it to have Stanford look at my slides was something I would never known to do. And even my doctor didn't know to do. So I would say like have someone else, another professional who is, you know, this is what they do is look at this type of cancer, have them check out your slides to get a second opinion. I love that. A very specific type of second opinion. So have another yeah. pathologist look at your tissue yes. under a microscope. Love it. Love it. Can't wait to hear the answer to this question, and I know you've been thinking about it. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Health insurance, of course. It would just be, it's more of a general, just have the type of health insurance other countries have where you don't get this huge bill when you go that you don't have to worry about going. I mean, I'm grateful that I'm healthy right now, but I broke my foot a year ago and I I should have gone to the emergency room and I didn't because I was concerned about the bill I was going to get. So um, my, my husband almost called 911 because I started going into, I had shock. Oh, I went into shock <laughs> and it looked like I was dying actually during the time. And my I, I, just my blood pressure dropped out, everything. It was really bad. And the fact that I'm in that state and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I can't spend this kind of money on healthcare is crazy. Like you should just be able to go when you need to go. So I would just say fix the healthcare so that um, we can all have healthcare and not worry about it. Yeah, it, there's a lot to be done there. I I had an emergency room visit. This is probably five years ago now. I was there for exactly two hours, and just for the visit, not for the scan they did, they billed my insurance fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> Which my insurance oh my was like, gosh. yeah, you know, F you, we're not paying that. But I just, I yeah. was like, are you kidding me? I was there exactly two hours. That's it. Yeah. And that's it. And that's insane. Yeah. Are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? I hope so. Okay. All right. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. And you, and you live in San Diego, correct? Yeah. <laughs> Next time I get to L.A., I might have to come see you if you'll let me. Okay. Yes. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. What is one word that best describes you? Joy. Oh, I thought so. <laughs> There's always a word that pops into my head, you know, a few minutes in to interviewing someone, and I'm right about 50% of the time. So. Oh, yeah. Wow. And what is your favorite song? My favorite song is Come Pick Me Up by, I think it's Brian Adams. Ryan Adams. Sorry, Ryan Adams. Ryan Adams. <laughs> okay. Ryan Adams. Come Pick Me Up. Yeah, I love that song. Why do you love it? Okay, because it starts out slow, and it's and then it's uh, there's some words in there like um, something about like, will you walk right up with a smile on your face? Something I'm missing some words in there, but um, in my mind that go that brings me to heaven, and like, do I feel like I've done everything that I could have done? So, but it starts out kind of in a whisper, and then it gets louder, and like, and all of a sudden he belts it out, you know, at the chorus, and and I feel like that's mimicking life, you know, like life you go through these ebbs and 
you know, like these highs and lows in your life. And um, that song to me mimics it and it brings everything together. And that, that one line in the beginning just brings me to heaven and I'm at the gates of heaven. I might have to put together a playlist. I'm learning about so many different types of music. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, your favorite meal? Sushi. <laughs> and who is your favorite person? My favorite person? My fan. I have to, I can't just say one. So it'd be my husband, Alex, and my kids, Christiana and Ryan. And how old are they? Uh, Christiana and Ryan are six and eight. My husband is in his mid thirties. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I definitely want you to talk about your book. Okay. My book. <laughs> I have a book that I wrote, and the reason why I wrote it was because I wanted to share my experience of not just only going through the cancer, but what it was like to come back. Because for me, it wasn't just um, you know rainbows and sunshine and birds landing on my shoulder. It was tough, and but I did make it back, and I was able to make things happen and um, create a program that helps kids with cancer. And so everything happens for a reason. And this is the kind of book that I would like to have read and have available to me when I was sick um, because it, it just goes through everything. And I know people who have read it who have cancer or know someone who has a cancer and they read it within three hours because it resonates so much. And they tell me it's like reading their own story. So it just it gives people hope that they can go through it too. What's the title of the book? It's called Joy, the Story of a Dolphin Trainer, Filmmaker, and Cancer Survivor. Oh, I love <laughs> it. Wait, and is that you on the cover? Yeah, that's me. Oh, that's awesome. And I love it because I'm underwater with, and there's bubbles um, coming out of my nose. There's a dolphin there uh, with me, but it's really, it's a mistake shot, right? It's not, this is not a shot that any of us would normally like, but I remember liking it because I was just happy. You know, it was just like one of those moments that you capture where you're just kind of in a moment and you're just happy. And I was just so happy underwater with whatever was going wrong. <laughs> and so that's the cover of my book. And where can people find the book? They can get it on Amazon. Okay, so we will make sure we put a link to that. And how can people get in touch with you, Joy, if they want to reach out to you? If you go to my website, joyclausensoto.com, you can reach me there. I'm also on LinkedIn, Joy Clausen Soto, if you find me there. Um, and I, I respond really fast to either one. So please find me, reach out, talk to me if you have any questions. I'm always open to help people and to give any advice that I can. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joy, for coming on and for sharing your incredible story today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.